Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. On today's show, we're talking about how maturing cities handle growth and development. There are two costs associated with growth. There's the initial cost, and then there's the ongoing life cycle cost. Buildings and neighborhoods go through cycles of development, stagnation, decline, and then renewal. Cities, therefore, go through those same cycles as well. When a city is growing, it costs money to build roads and schools and infrastructure, like water treatment and sewage treatment. These costs are the initial costs they are often paid for by the developers that are responsible for the growth. For the first number of years, that new infrastructure is pretty low maintenance. It's new and it's pristine and the cost of maintaining it is close to zero. But eventually, those roads need to be repaved, the sidewalks repaired, streets need to get dug up and pipes replaced underground and eventually landscaping is going to need a refresh. Schools that were new and filled to capacity will eventually be underutilized as families move out of those mature neighborhoods. The cost of maintaining the roads and schools remains pretty constant over time. Cities all over North America have recognized the true cost of maintaining the aging infrastructure. Leaky water mains often result in up to 30% water loss for a city. It's much cheaper to reuse existing infrastructure through the process of urban renewal instead of letting major regions of the city decay into an urban wasteland as we've seen in so many cities. Intensification is the word that best encapsulates the eco-friendly approach to urban renewal. Many cities have changed the rules to allow for more accessory dwelling units. These could be basement apartments, that is if you have basements, in some cases, these can be carriage houses or backyard cottages. Sometimes, these are apartments built on top of a detached garage structure. The rule is that for a unit to be considered a valid accessory dwelling unit, it must share the same utilities as the main house. In that sense, the additional density does not attract any additional infrastructure cost. No additional roads need to be paved. No additional pipe needs to be buried in the ground. The incremental cost to the city is virtually zero. The City of Houston recently enacted the Livable Places Initiative, which outlines the information presented at the June Planning Commission meeting. Now, Houston's an unusual city in the sense that it doesn't actually have zoning in the same form that other cities do. There's no zoning in Houston at all. But still, their Planning Commission does place restrictions. One of the restrictions is a combined driveway approach. Additional access onto a street disrupts traffic, so the more curb cuts you have, the more traffic is going to be disrupted and the more it affects the nature and the character of the city. In the revised language, they included language that would restrict direct vehicle access to a street for lots that are only 33 feet wide or larger. Lots that are narrower than 33 feet can use alley access, flag lots, shared driveway, or permanent access easements. They also clarified that the maximum unit size within a courtyard-style development was amended from 1,500 square feet to 1,800 square feet. This would allow folks, residents in Houston, to build accessory dwelling units within their properties, part of this initiative. The city of Ottawa, where I live, also recently passed a new ordinance which will allow up to two accessory dwelling units to be added by right in any property zoned residential R1. These two accessory dwelling units have to share the same main utilities of the house, and only a single curb cut is permitted. The real question is how many independent property owners will choose to intensify their properties and create additional housing at essentially zero cost to the city in terms of infrastructure. The other major form of development 
are greenfield developments, and are those going to be approved with the same ease as these infill projects? The problem with infill projects is that they're small. They're too small for large-scale home builders. You can't really mobilize an entire framing crew to move from one property to the next in an infill setting. Simply not enough work to make the process efficient. Just like an assembly line is more efficient at making cars than building them one at a time, a residential subdivision is the assembly line equivalent when it comes to home building. The trades move from one home to the next until the entire street, the entire block is completed. But you're trading one form of efficiency for another. Efficiency for the builders is coming at the expense of efficiency for the city. The life cycle cost for the cities is actually more important. Intensification in cities is environmentally friendlier than gobbling up agricultural land and allowing the cities to expand outward. Meanwhile, land in the core lies underutilized. For smaller investors, these accessory dwelling units create new supply. They allow for other sources of income, which subsidizes the cost of home ownership for independent homeowners. It's not just Houston and Ottawa. Many cities all over North America have implemented accessory dwelling unit ordinances. Dallas amended its ADU bylaw in 2020, and it allows for backyard cottages by right. Toronto did the same thing. Many cities across North America have been dealing with the same issue of intensification as a way of increasing density without taxing the city's infrastructure. As you think about that, have an awesome rest of your day. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.